all so much for having me. Uh, wow. Yeah, uh, my wife and I, who is over there, we actually came here last week for the first time. And uh, the word that we sort of both walked away with was that it was really refreshing to worship with you guys. There is something about the way that you guys worship, whether it's just the introspective nature of it or just the ability to, to be with people, to sing in another language was just uh, an absolute gift. And we're really, really thankful for that. And thank you so much for having us. Um, so as they said, I am Tommy. I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, I recently took the Myers-Briggs, uh, I don't know if anyone else has taken that, and found out I am an ENFJ, which means I guess I like people, which is relatively true, and uh, I like ideas as well. Um, and with that being said, because I do deeply care for people, if you are new and for whatever odd reason you're like, man, this guy stinks, he's boring, please it is not a reflection of sunrise. Come back next week or the week after and give it a fair shot. Um, and so today, um, we're going to look at Matthew sixteen thirteen through 20. Um, so if you guys want to turn in your Bibles, that is great, uh, and we'll read it together. But as I was praying for you guys, trying to discern what exactly God would possibly want me to think talk to you guys about. Uh, I just kind of revisited your, your vision statement, your mission statement, which for those who don't know exactly, it is to introduce people to Jesus and to help them grow by his grace, which of course then begs the question, who is Jesus? And uh, it's when I wrestled with that question, I felt this passage stirring inside of me. And so if you have it, uh, I'll read it. And for those who don't have it, well, I'll read it. And uh, We'll go through it together. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Interesting. So as I kind of mentioned before, I am originally from California, San Francisco, Berkeley, Bay Area. That is my hometown. And usually around the holidays, I'll go back, uh, especially when I was a college student and lived in Tampa. It was a little bit easier than flying from Cayman over there. Um, And every New Year's Eve, they have maybe fireworks that they show in the San Francisco um, pier, on the pier. And uh, typically, before this past year, and even the year before that, I would go to my best friend's house, or I guess what I would call my best friend. He was one of my first friends uh, growing up, and we would watch the ball drop, and we'd drink apple cider because we were kids, and then once the clock struck 12, we'd have our confetti poppers, and we'd have our streamers, and we'd go crazy and pretty much wake up all the neighbors, uh, because it was a fairly quiet neighborhood. But as we sort of got older and got distant, 
we stopped hanging out as much, and whatever, it was cool. And I just felt like this past year, you know, it's my last time really being able to enjoy the holidays in California like this because I got married shortly after. And I said, okay, so I'm going to go to San Francisco, and I'm going to watch the fireworks happen. And so I'm going, and for those who don't know, San Francisco and really the Bay Area, they have this thing called the BART train, which is kind of like the equivalent to New York's subway, or like Chicago's, I guess, uh, I guess Chicago Transit Authority's train, or something like that. Um, And so they have this BART system, and really I'm going, and I'm excited, and before New Year's begins, there's always this level of anticipation, right? Like everyone's like super excited because the New Year is coming, and they're making all these resolutions to be better people, and no one really knows what's coming and what's up ahead, and all they know is that the drama of the old year is gone, and this new year awaits them, and they're extremely excited to begin that. And I'm in the BART train system, whatever, at the station and I feel this energy the entire time and you know the things that are going on I get on this train and we're riding and we're going to San Francisco and I kid you not a marching band gets on the BART train out of nowhere just literally tubas drums random things random instruments and they're playing in the middle of this crowded train and people are super excited and it's like the only day of the year this is probably acceptable because if you're like on a Monday morning and all of a sudden a marching band comes in the train, you're going to be pretty upset if they start playing. But everyone's excited and everyone's taking pictures. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm enjoying it. And I get to San Francisco and we're watching the fireworks. And it's a little bit of a wait. And uh, you know, people have been drinking. They're excited. And they're still at that happy stage of drinking where everyone's loving everybody and all that good stuff. Uh, but then, I don't know, I don't know if this is something that God has done in me personally, or if this is just part of my personality, but parties always have the opposite reaction on me. So, like, I'll go to parties, and everyone's super excited, and all of a sudden, I just get really depressed. I'm like, I don't know what it is. Like, I'll go, and then I'm just like, man, this stinks. Like, I'd rather be elsewhere, anywhere else than this party. And I'm watching the fireworks take place, and everyone's celebrating, and all of a sudden, I just got this feeling like, what would God say about this? Like, what do these people think about Jesus? And if Jesus is, is always watching, always with us, and if he could come back at any given moment, what would he say about this moment right here with all these people as we embrace this new year and we say goodbye to the old drama and make new resolutions, but we don't actually know what that means. And so, whatever, the fireworks are still beautiful. I mean, it's, it's San Francisco, and San Francisco is beautiful. And at this point, what happens is that after the clock strikes 12, everyone's still been drinking. They haven't slowed down since before. But now the happiness turns into aggression and anger and sadness, and women are weeping, and guys are getting into shoving matches, and elsewhere shootings are going on in San Francisco. Welcome to America. Um, and... Uh, Whatever, I'm walking back, and all the New Year's resolutions that people are making to be better people go out of the window immediately. Uh, And it's kind of funny how that happens, but whatever, I get back on the train, and it's crowded, extremely crowded, and no one's social anymore, no one's excited anymore. Um, And I'm, whatever, sandwiched behind this group of four people, and it's two guys and two girls sitting next to them, and I'm listening to them talk because I have to, 
and they're talking about Dungeons and Dragons, of all things in the world. I don't know. So I went to community college before I went to the University of Tampa, and I never understood Dungeons and Dragons. I'm sorry. For those who play, if you're into Magic or Yu-Gi-Oh! or Digi-Ball, is it Digi-Tech, Digi-whatever, Digi-something, I just never understood it. I just never got into it. And so I'm listening to these guys talk about this, and I'm like, God, this stinks. Like, really? Like, I have to listen to 45 minutes of Dungeons and Dragons. What in the world is going on here? Uh, And so this is happening, and the girls are sitting next to them, and they're totally not interested. And I'm like, man, there is something wrong with these guys. Because, guys, you know if a girl is not interested in what you're talking about, chances are you're going to change the subject to suit the interest of the girl next to you. But not these guys. Nope. Mm-mm, not at all. And so they're talking about Digimon. They're talking about uh, Dungeons & Dragons. And then they start getting into all this weird sci-fi, fiction, fantasy, uh, technology, all the things we could do because we have the technology for it, but maybe the government won't allow it because the money is not there. And I'm like, God, this really stinks. Like, this is hard. And uh, whatever, we get to this one stop, and this woman, she walks past me, and she looks at me, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And there's something just different about this woman. And I'm wondering, like, God, is this, like, something spiritually different about this woman? Like, should I be aware of something? And discerning spirits is not my gift at all, people, so I don't know these things. Uh, and so she sits down, and eventually, um, whatever, they keep talking, and the conversation switches to God, which it usually does with these people, because someone has something to say about God. We all have something to say about God. Uh, and I guess one of the guys, he used to go to this universalist church or something like that. So he was like, yeah, it was totally cool. You know, you'd have a Christian sitting next to a Hindu, next to a Satanist, next to an atheist, next to whatever, someone who was Baha'i. And he's like, and it was cool. We just all understood that we were bound by some sort of life force that draws us into reverence. And I'm like, man, that is weird. That's really weird. Um, And they eventually go around and start talking about religious views. And one guy is like, yeah, you know, the reason why I don't believe in anything is because everything has been started by men. Everything has been started by men. And it's not like God has sort of come out and said, this is the true religion. This is the way. And if there was, if he did, maybe then I'd believe in something. But there hasn't been anything like that. And I'm just thinking, like, wait, what? Like, really? Like, then who is Jesus? And what? That, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I, that, there's an obvious answer to this question. And they eventually go around in circles. And the girl, one of the girls is like, yeah, I don't really know what I believe. I haven't really thought about it too much. And, and usually that, whatever, I deal with students, and students say this kind of this stuff all the time. But for some reason, this time, it really bothered me. And I'm like, how do you not know? How do you not care if God exists? How do you not wonder who he is or wonder what he wants from us in this life? That is the most important question that you could be asking. And you want to live your life haphazardly without ever asking the question, does God exist? Really? Are you serious? How do you exist? And, and next to me, as it turns out, the lady, there, there's nothing, I don't know, there might be something spiritually wrong. That is not my, my gift, as I said, but as I'm listening to their conversation, it turns out 
that this woman sells herself to men. And I'm like, holy crap, what do you do in this moment? Like, all I know is that the Holy Spirit needs to, like, show up and, like, explode in this BART train. And I'm like, do I start open-air preaching? Like, I've never really been one for that. Like, I'm not, oh, man, I've always thought those guys are somewhat awkward. Uh, And I'm like, goodness, all I know is I need to be two people at once. And I'm like, I don't know. Do I tell this girl that, you know, God is real, that he has something for her? Do I tell the other woman that you are made in the image of God, that God sees you, that he loves you, and that he wants to be in relationship with you, that you, too, do have dignity? And as I I'm wrestling with this question. The stop comes, and then the two guys get off the train, and I'm like, "Crap!" You know, like, and and at that point, I think I'd been reading um, York Moore's "Growing Your Faith by Give It Away" by giving it away, which is an amazing book on evangelism. You should read it if you haven't. And I'm, all I know is I have to do something, and so I talked to the two girls, the ones that were saying, "Well, I don't really know what I believe," and I asked them if they were friends and with those people, and we talked, and I was just like, you know. This isn't even necessarily about you becoming a Christian. And even though I believe that that is true, and there's a reason why I followed Jesus the way I followed Jesus, you have to investigate that truth for yourself. You can't sit here and just pretend like it doesn't matter. The questions of of what is the meaning to life, what is the purpose behind the universe, questions like why is there something rather than nothing, all of those questions find their zenith in Jesus. And the question of does God exist and who is Jesus? And I think that's why I've grown so obsessed with this passage because all those questions find their zenith in this passage. And, you know, for those who are familiar with the Bible, Peter's confession of Christ and the following story about Jesus predicting his own death, they go hand in hand. They are essentially two sides to the same coin. And even though I believe that, you know, they could go together, I feel like there's something in particular God wants to say to us this morning that would be completely overlooked if we, com- if we took the second passage with this one. So if it's okay with you guys, um, we'll, we'll focus on this one. And perhaps the message... This morning will be basic, and you know it, and you've heard it, but I find that it's the basic truths, the basic biblical truths that carry the most profound meanings, and that we are always returning back to them. You know, interestingly enough, some scholars would argue that verses 17 and 19 should be taken out of the Bible. They say, synoptically speaking, because neither Mark nor Luke have those verses recorded in their story, in their version, if they're in, in their retelling. And they say, well, it's obviously just doesn't fit here. Some would say that it's just misplaced, and they think that they should take it out. But I actually disagree. (laughs) Um, And that's what you're taught to do in college, is disagree with scholars. Um, And so I actually think that verses 17 through 19 are just as critical to everything else here. And to take them out is to rob us of something. There are three uh, essential movements that I see at work in this passage. First, there is the matter of who Jesus is. And then second, there is the matter of who Simon is in light of this confession. And finally, there is the matter of promises and purposes God bestows upon him and the disciples in light of this confession, which I would argue is actually how it works in our lives. But it all starts with the question of who is Jesus. So just before this passage, Jesus, he feeds a crowd of 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish, which is certainly no small feat. 
Um, And he does this only to be met by the religious leaders of the day who are trying to demand a sign from him. They're they're trying to discredit who he is in some way. And Jesus, being Jesus, is like, I don't have anything to prove to you. And he says no and walks away. And he pulls his disciples aside and he says, you know, whatever you do, do not listen to the Pharisees don't, and the Sadducees. Don't take in their yeast. And they're like, what? Is he talking about the bread? Because we left the bread. I have no idea. And Jesus is like, focus, pay attention. I'm not talking about bread here. Uh, and they're like, oh, teachings, got you. Um, and so this is almost like Jesus setting the record straight. And what's interesting is that he does it in Caesarea Philippi. And now scholarship tells us about Caesarea Philippi is that it is a city with a history of pagan worship. So I guess in Old Testament times, Baal was one of the worst gods that were worshipped there. And then eventually when the Greeks took it over, they made it a temple for the god of Pan, or the god's name was Pan. Uh, and he was the god of like hunting and rustic music and was widely associated with fertility. But the name of the city itself, Caesarea Philippi, comes from Augustus Caesar, who gave the city to Herod, uh, Herod the Great. And Herod builds this great marble temple in honor of Caesar. And so it's in this place of pagan worship, of complete mismeaning and mismatch association with God, that Jesus decides to shed light on who he truly is, which I think is interesting. Jesus is about laying claim to the things that are not, redeeming what is, and transforming both for his glory. And uh, if you're paying attention, if you read the passage, and if you look at it, you'll see that Jesus does a lot of really rhetorically interesting things here. Uh, One is he poses the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Only to let them answer a little bit, and they've got some answers, only to follow it up and answer it indirectly in the second question. But what about you? Who do you say I am? He is the Son of Man. He answers it for them. And it's interesting because Jesus is actually really fond of the title of the Son of Man. Some people, if you pay attention, he actually uses it more than Christ or Messiah. But that's not to say that they're not the same thing. Um, I think scholarship says uh, he uses it maybe. The word Son of Man is used 41 times in the New Testament all by Jesus, ironically enough. But the reason, some people would argue, is that words like Messiah or Christ, they had this preconceived notions of what those things looked like. So they were expecting someone like Moses to lead the people, or they were expecting someone like King David who would come and liberate the Israelites from Roman rule, and they'd, he'd be this conquering Christ, you know, kicking down the doorposts, flipping over things, and uh, kicking butt and taking names, essentially. Uh, and they weren't ready for this meek, humble man who comes... Uh, as, a, as a suffering servant who, in light of this confession, only talks about his suffering and his death and the things that he must go through. And so he uses a different term to, uh, I guess, sort of clarify what it all really means. And the Son of Man, uh, for those who maybe do not know, uh, is from Daniel 7. It's this vision that Daniel has of this divine courtroom that's taking place where God, the Ancient of Days, is judging all earthly authorities and stripping them of their authority and bestowing power upon this one who he sees who is like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven. And he approaches the Ancient of Days and is led into his presence. He was given authority, power, glory, and all nations and peoples of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is Jesus, the Son of Man. 
And now people in the first century understood this to be some sort of messianic prophecy. They knew that much. But there wasn't as strong of a nationalistic stigma behind it as much as there might have been with King of the Jews or Messiah or Christ. But what I think is really interesting, and the question that I always have to wonder when it comes to Jesus, is why? I mean, why ask this question? Why ask what people think about him? Think about this. I mean, this is Jesus, who, who's not a stranger to people's hearts. I mean, if you remember the story of the Samaritan woman, he totally calls her out on the five husbands that she has and the sixth guy that she's living with that isn't her husband. He calls out the Pharisees and says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? I know you. Uh, right after he heals the paralytic, Jesus is no stranger to what goes on in the human mind, in the human heart, and yet he still asks the question, who do people say I am? And I, I think about it, and it's not like he's insecure in himself, and all of a sudden he needs to be reassured. It's not like he's having a crisis of faith in himself, and he's like, please, somebody tell me who I am, because I have no idea anymore. And I just, I just wonder why, why. Jesus knows who he is, and he knows what other people say he is. And, uh, you know, when I was a student... Uh, there was this guy in our fellowship who, uh, I guess he grew up in Catholic school, um, and like a lot of people, a lot of students that I meet who grew up in Catholic school, and really Christian schools, and any sort of religious school, they have some really rough experiences, and they're not necessarily following or believing in that faith anymore, but he and my staff worker really hit it off, and um, he, my staff worker just noticed that this guy had some really awesome questions about who Jesus is. And so we tried to welcome him like family. We took him in, and we received him, and we just tried to love him. And he was extremely extroverted, extremely uh, boisterous, and he was unfiltered, as most of us are when we don't know Jesus, and all of a sudden we come around Christians. And so no question was too taboo or off-limits for this guy, and he would ask anything and everything underneath the sun. But he was also a business student. And so for those who know the business world, as most of you know, we are in the Cayman Islands, which is like a financial powerhouse in the world. Uh, And so he was in the business world. And a lot of the business students, at least at the University of Tampa, consider themselves self-made. They don't need God because they are wealthy. And they are doing these things because they believe in their own sort of fortune, their own sort of fate or whatever they believe. And so he is hanging out with this guy who is like, probably most known for his strong bent towards atheism. This kid wasn't just an atheist, but he like attacked Christians for their faith and made you feel stupid for believing in anything. And because a lot of us were relatively new to the faith, it was like, oh snap, who is this guy? I have nothing to say. Um, And so this guy who was coming around our fellowship was also hanging out with this kid. And so he'd pose questions to him that he'd have no answers to whatsoever at all. But at the same time, this guy was also hanging out with Mormons. And just imagine the confusion of that. And his family is strong Catholic. And so he's got religion coming at him at all ends. And every time he is with a different group, he is somebody else. So we're going to maybe uh, our annual fall conference. It's called Sunburst. And it's like year-round, and all students, not year-round, but 
yearly, annually, and all students from the state of Florida sort of come together. It's 300, 400, 500 students, all passionate about Jesus, learning about what it means to follow him and to be a passionate disciple on campus. And he's there, and he's got these questions about Mormonism. And we're trying to explain to him the differences between the two because they aren't the same thing, despite what Mormons might say. Uh, And they might say they have the complete gospel, but we won't go on that today. Um, And he just doesn't get it for some odd reason. Like, this is a kid who can totally understand how to make money off of, like, foreclosed houses, and yet he doesn't understand comparative religion. And so it boggles my mind. I don't know. And I'm trying to explain to this kid, like, the differences between the two, and nothing. It's just not sinking in at all. And yet, for some reason, at the end of the conference, he still gives his life to Jesus. He's like, I feel something here. I don't know what it is, but I feel something, so I'm going to give my life to Jesus. And we're like, woo! We think. <laughs> and uh, that stings when you have to consider whether or not you should celebrate. Uh, and so the, anyway, he uh, starts hanging out with the atheist kid again, and the atheist starts raise, like, railing questions at him left and right, and he doesn't have answers for it anymore. And so he's like, oh, man, maybe I didn't give my life to Jesus. I don't know. Maybe it was just the excitement of the moment. I don't actually follow Jesus. And then whatever. He starts hanging out with the Mormons, and the Mormons start telling him more things about, oh, actually, we're really not that different. It's not that bad. No, they think we believe this, but this is actually what we believe. And so he comes to our next conference, which is sort of the conference that changed my life, the weekend that really changed my life, and said, okay, I need to get serious about Jesus. Like, this guy isn't playing around. Like, he loves me a lot, and I can't do anything about it. And so he comes, and he's just ice cold the entire weekend. Nothing. We're trying to pray for him, pray with him, pray for him. Nothing at all. Eventually, I think at one point, we have everyone sort of praying for this kid, and nothing. Uh, And yet, at the end of the weekend, he gets baptized. And we're like, this literally makes no sense. There is no reason why you should be getting baptized. You have no idea what you believe. Like, seriously and unfortunately, he's not following Jesus today still because eventually, uh, whatever, things change, his schedule changes, he starts hanging out in the business world a little bit more. And because you can't love both God and money, I guess he chooses money. And now he's an atheist, just chilling, doing his thing. But I, I just think that it, he, it was so unfortunate that this guy had no foundation, no idea of who Jesus actually is, and yet he knew what everybody else said about Jesus. He was familiar with what we said about Jesus and what atheists and what Mormons and everybody else said about Jesus, but nothing else. And I just feel like perhaps that's why Jesus asked this question to the disciples, because it is easy to know what everyone else thinks about Jesus. But the thing that really counts to him is what you think about him. Not with your brother, your sister, your mother, but what do you think about Jesus? And, and maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've been attending Sunrise for a while and you've been checking out community groups and you've been reading the Bible a little bit, but you never actually had to make a real sort of commitment or a real say in who Jesus is. And I, I just, I feel like the question that's burning on my heart is, who do you say Jesus is? And you have to pick your answer wisely because it just might change everything. Joshua McDowell, uh, who wrote More Than a Carpenter, which last I heard was on the book table. I don't know if anybody checked it out yet. But he opens his book by, you know, he's, I think he, I don't know if, I don't remember the, the, the background in particular, but he 
wasn't a Christian when he makes this sort of journey into investigating who Jesus is. And he opens up by confessing his own sort of struggle and highlighting the paradox of who Jesus is. Because, I mean, if you think about it, for most earthly standards, there's no reason why we should remember Jesus. I mean, he was on earth almost 2,000 years ago. That's one thing. Uh, And who really thinks about 2,000 years ago? Um, We don't even think about yesterday for the most part. Uh, And yet, he's born into this small Jewish community. He is uh, a part of a poor family in a poor city and uh, a minority for the most part. And then on top of that, he is in uh, one of the smallest countries in the world. And he only lives for 33 years. And for the first 30 years of his life, he's largely anonymous. He's unknown. He's nothing really too special to most people. It isn't until the last three that he really makes his public appearance. And, and yet, when you think about it, there is no one who's had the kind of impact on history that Jesus has. No one has inspired more movements. No one has inspired more people or sparked more controversy than this person who existed 2,000 years ago. Uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Mother Teresa, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Kierkegaard, Tolstoy, uh, you name it. Even Gandhi, to some, ext- to some extent, is influenced by this person of Jesus. And that is part of who he is. And part of the reason why your kids can get educated in this country is because of the missionaries who were inspired by Jesus to come here. And yet, for some odd reason, we do not know. We are not unanimously decided on who this person of Jesus is at all. I mean, most people will want to say he is some good moral teacher. But what's the problem with that? I mean, if, have any of you, like, if you read the teachings of Jesus, being a good moral teacher is far from it. I mean, he calls people to pluck their eyes out if it's causing them to sin. He says things like, eat my body and drink my blood. He, he says some pretty harsh things, and he calls himself God. I mean, how many of us have ever tried to say, okay, I'm going to study this passage with my friend, and you go back to the passage only to see that it doesn't say the thing you thought it said? Like, that happens to me all the time. I remember uh, we, I was leading a Bible study for black students in, in the University of Tampa. And I was like, you know, let's study the book of Matthew. Matthew is fairly basic. It's fairly easy. It's kind of an introduction to who Jesus is. It's kind of like, hey, I'm Jesus. Let's be friends. And I'm reading it over, like, the summer, the summer before we start. And there are so many weeping and gnashing of teeth references and like burning in flames and things. I'm like, Jesus, really? Did you have to say that? Like, come on, man. Like, you're killing me here. And that's, that's whatever. I deal with that because I care about people sometimes a little too much. And, and Jesus doesn't just claim to be a good moral teacher. He claims to be God. And, and to say that he is God and for him not to have been God would actually make him the worst moral teacher of all time. And, and to some extent, that would make him a hypocrite because that means he called people to tell the truth, he himself living a lie. And, and, or maybe he is a demon who is trying to masquerade and guide people into falsehood and put their fate in eternity into something that is obviously a lie. And if you guys are familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, famous trilemma, he says you essentially have three options. Jesus is either a liar who knew he was, who he, who he knew he wasn't, who he said he was, and, or he's a lunatic 
who is maybe crazy in the head, delusional, nuts, or maybe he is who he says he is. And of course, now that time has passed and we have more skepticism, people have made amendments to that. But essentially, we don't have a whole lot of options as far as who we think Jesus is. He either was who he said he was, or he wasn't, and there's something to be said about that. C.S. Lewis writes, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, while it's nice to know what everyone else thinks who Jesus is, what really matters to him is who you say he is. You know, perhaps what seems basic about this passage this morning that I just can't seem to shake is that Peter is the one who calls Jesus Messiah. And that's really basic observation. I mean, in your Bibles, it probably has Peter's confession of Christ as the subtitle. But for some reason, I'm like reading and I'm studying this passage and I'm noticing a lot of things. But it isn't until I'm like really like getting into it. I'm like, wait, Peter confesses Jesus is Christ. What in the world? Like Jesus, and you have to like you have to like think about this. Like Jesus asks all of the disciples who do other people think he is, and it says they replied, not just one, but they replied. All of them could easily say who other people thought Jesus was. But then when he asks, Who do you say I am? That you is plural, it's not just one person, and yet one person responds. One person has the guts to come out and say, Jesus, you are who you say you are, and I believe you. And I think that is so preposterous. Like, that is crazy. And perhaps people think that Peter is speaking on behalf of everybody else, and that's a possibility. I'll grant that. I will grant that premise. But even then, I just think that is so crazy. Everyone can say who, what everyone else thinks Jesus is, but only one will say who they actually think he is. And, and as I'm thinking about that, I mean, that's just Peter, isn't it? I mean, this is a Peter moment, man. And I don't think I've ever loved Peter as much as I loved him in this moment. Because I'm thinking about who he is, and I'm thinking about questions like uh, John 6, where the, everyone's deserting Jesus, and Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, uh, are, will you desert me too, even though I chose you? And Peter says, no, where else can we go for you hold the words to eternal life? And that is Peter. Peter's the one who's crazy enough to get out of the boat and try walking with Jesus. He is the one who has the audacity to speak in the transfiguration of the mountain where there's Moses and Elijah. And he's like, well, should we build the tent? You know, it's good for us to be here. And he, he's just crazy. He's ridiculous. Peter is the one who lops off the ear of the guy trying to arrest his best friend. Like, that is Peter, man, and I love that about him. And we may judge him and call him silly and say he makes mistakes because he does make mistakes. He does not walk all the way to Jesus on water. And yes, he does deny Jesus in that courtyard. But what's interesting is that he was the only one in that courtyard. Peter goes where no one else will go. And that's part of who he is. And I think that it is beautiful that that is part of who he is. And Jesus affirms that in him. Jesus' response to Peter is... Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for this was revealed to you not by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In the same way that there is a difference in the way the world sees Jesus and how Jesus sees himself, there is a difference in how the world sees Simon Peter and the way that Jesus sees Simon Peter. He starts by acknowledging who he is. 
he does say, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, at the name that he is given at birth. And the thing about names is that they carry a certain identity. They carry a certain meaning. And when we say, like, who, who we are and we say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and that name, that name carries a history with us. And so who is Simon, son of Jonah? He is this unlearned fisherman from Galilee who, for the most part, is doing that. Because if he was learned, he'd be a rabbi. He'd be doing something else. But Peter is, or this Simon, is unlearned. And yet, Jesus acknowledges his flesh and blood, this title that the the world gives him, only to discount it in the next sentence. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, who the world sees you as, but it is not by flesh and blood that this has been revealed to you. He says it does not matter that actually there is something else at work here. It is not just the earth. It is not just your flesh and blood. It's not just that, but it is my Father in heaven. It is a transcendent, divine family. And he calls you something different. He says you are Peter. You are a rock. You are solid. You are stable. You are foundational. And perhaps you don't do so well on water like rocks do, but you will also crush the proverbial scissors that try to attack this group. And yet you trip and you stumble over the simple things that you should have down, which is the proverbial paper that we all deal with in our lives. That is Peter. He is the rock. And, it's, and this is simple. This is Extremely simple and basic, but I just have the pleasure and the fortune to say to you that there is a way that the world sees all of you, but Jesus sees you completely different. He does that. See, when we confess Jesus as Lord, not only does he affirm our confession, but he also confirms who we are in him. It's in the act of committing our lives to him that we discover who we truly are. I think out of all the questions that we wrestle with, and the questions that we get asked in this life, the scariest one, the, the hardest one, is the question of who am I? Has anybody ever gotten to a point in their life where they're just like, I don't know who I am anymore? It is terrifying, is it not? And, and yet, and you know, it's funny because that question of who am I, though it's not a question of, hi, what is your name? We answer it like that, don't we? If somebody comes up to me and says, who are you? I'm going to say I'm Tommy Wilkerson. Or maybe it's not even a question of, of what we do for a living. And yet I answer that way sometimes. It's, hi, who are you? I'm Tommy Wilkerson, and I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the best awesome job in the world, in your face. Um, but that's not, that's not the question that's at hand, is it? Who am I is so much more existential, is so much bigger, so overwhelming, so vague. Who are you at the essence of who you are? And we don't know this. It is so hard. But whatever we do, however we respond, that answer reveals where we put our worth and our value. And for so many of us, that answer is bound to what we do. It is a hard question to answer. And so many of us live this life performing for the different audiences we encounter, right? We are a different person at work than we are at home. And we are a different person at home than we are at church. And we are a different person at church than we are at the doctors and little things like that. And and the unfortunate thing is that it is so possible. And I've experienced this where you, you perform for so many different audiences that when the curtains close and the audiences go home, you have no idea who's actually behind the mask. There is something about the constant changing of our identities that that we have to always almost 
confirm who we are with other people. We have to check. We have to say, who am I, guys? Who do people say I am? And we have that. We have that, that thing, but because people themselves are changing, and they're always changing, and their definitions of who they are are constantly changing. Their definitions of who you should be are constantly changing. And there's got to be something. There needs to be something that is rooted and stable, that does not change, that does not sway with the wind, that can't be taken away from us like a job or like our relationship to other people. There has to be something. And it just reminds me, uh, Henry Nouwen, who uh, wrote this book, In the Name of Jesus, and if you've never read that and you're like in ministry or Christian leadership or if you're just Christian, period, I recommend this book, In the Name of Jesus. It will wreck your world, wrecked mine. Uh, and he basically tells this story about how this guy, he is, what is he? He's like a teacher at Yale, Harvard, Notre Dame, like big names. And he does this for 20 years, and that's who he is. But then he decides that, you know, this is actually stealing my soul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this. I'm going to leave this alone. And he gets invited to be a priest at a, uh, a mental care facility. And he talks about the nakedness that comes with that because all of a sudden the books that he's written, the things that he's done, they don't matter anymore. Who, he's going from the best and the brightest in the world to being with people who don't know how to speak hardly. And all of a sudden it's like these things. He has nothing to offer these people. They don't care that he has all these letters behind his name. And I think I just resonate with that story because I've experienced that. It, you know, after I whatever, committed my life to Jesus at the University of Tampa. I went home that summer, and at that point, I was dating my now wife, and, you know, I was trying to, like, show how serious I was about her. I'm like, look, girl, I'm serious about you, you know, and, uh, and I was like, I know, I know you're wondering if I'm going to pull through, but I'm going to pull through, and I'm going to work all these jobs, you see, and I'm going to save up money, and I'm going to visit you in the Cayman Islands because I'm, I'm that good, you know. I do it for the name of love, and uh, so I'm working for this uh, this, uh, this, I guess, alternative behaviors thing. And it, they work with mental care patients and trying to help them gain independence, right? And they give you this training, this, like, extensive training. And the problem with training is, like, I, I'm an ENFJ, so I love people and I love ideas, but they don't always connect, not always. Uh, the, I guess theory doesn't always equal praxis. There is a bit of a difference. And so we're doing this and they're talking about what happens if your, whatever, your consumer attacks you and things like that. Like your consumer can fire you. And this person who, whatever, just because he's mentally handicapped doesn't mean that he's stupid. It's not like he doesn't know what's going on. So if you promise him something, he'll remember that promise. And he, and if you say something like, you can't take him in your car, you can't do this, you can't even give him medicine. If he's choking, like, you have to think wisely about what you do, because remember, like, there's nothing happens. There are no repercussions if you don't do anything. But if you do something and it goes wrong, your, your neck is on the line. And so there's, like, all these things that they're drilling into you as we do this. And so, whatever, I think you need, like, 40 hours before you can really even handle a shift on your own. And so I go, and I walk through the door, and the guy who I'm dealing with, his name is Vincent. Vincent Terrell Tate. That was his name. I remember, and I walked in the door, and there was two other guys he was living with, and they're all sort of mentally handicapped in one way or another. And I just freeze. Like, I have no idea what to do in this moment because I wasn't ready for that. Like, you know, you, you like, whatever. It's like when you're studying tests and you're, you're reading and you're doing that whole thing. 
and you're whatever, and then you actually have to do it, and you actually have to sit behind the wheel and drive. It's a little bit different, right? It's a, it's a different feel, and so I just freeze, and he comes up to me, and he's like yelling at the person who um, is taking care of him, and he looks at me, he goes, my name is Vincent Terrell Tate. I have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. I am mildly retarded. I have diabetes. And he just goes on this laundry list of things that are wrong with him. Like, this is our first introduction. I don't even get to say, hi, my name is. It's just, I have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, all this, all this. And I'm just like, holy crap, I have no idea what to say. And then he goes, and I'm a child of God. And I'm like, holy crap, I have no idea how to respond to that. Like, I have to be honest, guys, I cried all the way home. And every time I went to his house and had to leave, I wept the entire way home because there's something about knowing that you're a child of God in which other people see it too. And I got to see the image of God in Vincent in a way that maybe I just didn't know existed. There's something, and it's not like he's mentally, he's mentally handicapped and therefore he's crazy enough to believe that he's a child of God, but he knows these things about himself and it rooted him. And, and Vincent, man, he was so amazing. Like, we would walk on the street, right? And Vincent loved rap music. Loved rap music. I don't understand. I mean, I like rap music, too. But, like, the kind of rap music that he listened to, I was like, yo, dog, you might want to check yourself on that one. But uh, we'd be walking down the street to go get something, like cigarettes for him, because that's what they do, and you can't tell them no. Um, and we're walking. And he just starts rapping on the spot, freestyle rapping. And this guy is quick. Like, he is fast. Like, this is the fastest I have ever heard anybody I've ever known freestyle rap. And he's just going, and he's rhyming left and right. And I'm just like, holy crap, like, this is Vincent, man. And, and I just, I don't know. There's something about knowing that the image of God rested in this person that all those it, it, it affirmed the image of God in me too. That this person knows that they are a child of the Most High, and so am I. Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons has Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just sing along. You know, it's like it's like that. The most important thing about who we are is not what we've done, but it's what's been done for us. It is what the one who knows us says about us. And I just saw that in Vincent. You know, I think that's why the story of Jesus' baptism is so profound. Uh, I mean, before Jesus has a chance to do any earthly ministry, before he pays the ultimate sacrifice, God announces from heaven that Jesus is his son, and with him he is well pleased. And, you know, we may think that it's easy for Jesus because he's perfect, but he says the same thing about you and I. So many of us, don't know who we are in Christ, and even more, don't know about who they are, period. You know, I, I, I'm reminded of a student I had who was absolutely beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And if you looked at her, you'd say, man, you are beautiful. And yet, whenever she looked at the mirror, she saw flaws. And so she would run every day. That was her thing. And she would run not only in a literal sense, but emotional, metaphorical sense. She would run from community. She would run from the love of God. She'd be running from herself, although we know how pointless that is. And it's just something so tragic when somebody doesn't know who they are. And yet, that is the world we live in. I think that is why we're so quick to compare ourselves to other people. I, I think that's why we take so many different personality tests. And if you're like me, you retake them because you don't like the results that come up. Uh, I, I think that's why we're so concerned about what other people say about us behind our backs. 
Uh, because we want to defend truth when it, is, uh, when it is not being said. And it's why we're obsessed with building a better us uh, and New Year's resolutions that hardly ever work out. It's why college sounds so promising to so many. And I'm pretty sure it's why a lot of people come to the Cayman Islands in the first place is because we don't know who we are, but whatever we know about ourselves, we know that we don't like it. And my question for you this morning is not only who do you say Jesus is, but do you know what he says about you? Do you know the name the Father in heaven has for you, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, who who ordained all your days before you lived a single one of them, who fearfully and wonderfully made you, who is closer to you than your own breath? Do you know what the God of heaven and earth and the one who creates both and everything that is within them, who speaks the universe into existence, do you know what he says about you? Do you know the song that he sings over you? And if you have never ever, ever taken time out to listen to the voice of God, I encourage you, I almost command you with whatever authority I have in the past 20 minutes that I've gained with you, that you need to make time this week and listen to the voice of your heavenly father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because it is when we find Uh, God's affirmation of us, he reveals to us who we truly are and the motivations behind the things that we do, the reasons why we have certain passions and certain hobbies, and the reason why we're in certain professions. There is a way that people see you, but there is a way that God sees you. And yes, you might not always live in light of that revelation. Peter didn't, and Vincent didn't, and I still don't. But at least God will be there to remind you when you fall, when you trip, when you stumble. And he will say that he loves you and this is who you are. You are a rock. And instead of what you do defining who you are, who you are will inspire what you do. Which brings, you to, which brings me to my third point. When we confess Jesus as Lord, not only does he tell us who we are, but he tells us what we are made to do, which I think is beautiful. You see, Jesus has a mission. And what's spectacular to me is that he calls these unlikely, unlearned disciples to be a part of that ministry, to be a part of that mission. And, you know, this is one of the only times that Jesus actually mentions church. Like, nowhere else really in the gospel uh, narratives does it really come up. I think with the exception of this and Matthew 18. That is the only time Jesus says church. Uh, And yet, I feel like this speaks volumes to who the church is meant to be in this passage. See, going back to Daniel 7, the Son of Man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power to establish his kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And we hear Jesus talk about this everlasting kingdom in this passage. Jesus is building his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, and the church is designed to assist in that endeavor. Back then, to be a keeper of keys was one of the most important roles you could have as a house servant, you see, because given the keys meant that not only did you have admittance to this place, but that you also got to admit who was coming in and who wasn't allowed to come. You got to say, all right, yeah, you're cool enough to get into the club, welcome, or hey man, like you smell funny, you're not allowed to come in here, go somewhere else. Uh, And that's what you were allowed to do. And he promises them that whatever they do on earth will then have eternal, everlasting effect. Whatever they bind on earth 
will be bound in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And you see, Jesus' mission is to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And beloved, there is a difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And all you have to do is watch the news and to be reminded of the difference. You see, in a dying world filled with sickness, exploitation, racism, sexism, terrorism, victimization, and tons of injustice, the church stands as a signpost of, to the world, uh, of the world that is to come, a world where every tear will be wiped away and death itself will die and all things will be made new and sickness will end. The church stands as a symbol that there is a new way to be human because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has shown us that there is a new way to be human. But listen to me, the kingdom comes as much as God allows and as much as we're willing to obey. And Jesus has given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But the question is this morning, what will we do with those keys? You know, this past week at my church, we had Vacation Bible School. And I was a part of Vacation Bible School growing up. I did it, I don't know, I don't remember most of it. Um, But I just remembered I had some really good friendships out of it. And it's been a while since I've been a part of a church that does Vacation Bible School. I am a college minister for the most part. And I like college students. They're cool kids, you know. Like, they have all these weird questions and all sorts of weird uh, idiosyncrasies that we work through with the gospel. Uh, And yet... I don't know, they invited, every, they invited the church to partake in Vacation Bible School, and I was like, you know, I don't really feel called to that. I don't need to, you know, like whatever, I, I don't really want to. And, I, and for a while, a while, I was just saying, no, I don't want to do this. And God had to kind of pull me aside and have a come-to-Jesus moment and say, tell me, how are you going to love the people of this country and not serve where they're offering you a chance to serve? Is your service based on condition, under the conditions that you want to, or is it truly an unconditional servanthood? And when God asks you those kinds of questions, what can you do, right? And so I was like, fine, we'll do that. I'll serve at Vacation Bible School. And for the most part, the men were supposed to be security guards. Like, that's their job because kids get out of hand. They get rambunctious. They get wild. And they wanted the men to kind of be there to be like, hey, sit down. But I'm not very intimidating, as you can see. Uh, And so I get there, and I say, yeah, I'm doing this. And they switch it up on me. They say, okay, you're going to teach, actually. That's what we want you to do. And I'm like, what? Like, hold on. I just wanted to be security guard. I just wanted to tell some kid to, like, sit down. You know, like, that's all I wanted. I just wanted to yell at somebody, you know. And they're like, no, we want you to teach. And I'm like, all right, cool. Maybe they'll give me the older kids, like the 13 and the 11-year-olds. You know, like, I can work with them. And they go, actually, we want you to work with the 6- and 7-year-olds, if that's cool. And I'm like, wait, hold on, excuse me? Like, I, I do college ministry. And I, I, yeah, high school is pretty important too. But six and seven-year-olds, like, I don't even remember what it's like to be six or seven. Like, come on now, seriously. And so I'm like, fine. I'm like complaining. And my wife, my wife is great, all right? So she is the reason why I know how to do half of the things that I do. And she's like, tell me, it's really not that hard. Really, honey, like, think about this, like, you know, all you have to do is you just get kids saying this, and you do that, and they'll love you no matter what. And I'm like, do you want to teach this class? Because I really don't. And uh, whatever, we have our first day, and our second day, and our third day, and our fourth day. And they have these lessons that they're learning, whether they're learning about Moses and the Israelites and manna. They're learning about using time wisely and making great choices for God. And I'm an all right teacher. I mean, nobody died, so I mean, that means I'm not awful. Um, and so uh, we're, we're, whatever, they're going through their lessons and they're learning a lot. And 
You know, what was interesting is that I, I kind of prayed that, you know, Jesus, will you show me uh, the image of God in children? Because the Bible does say that uh, the kingdom belongs to those such as these. It does belong to children. And do not hinder the children to, for, to coming to me. And I say, okay, Jesus, let's do this. And, you know, it's funny. Being in a room with six- and seven-year-olds reminded me of who I was in vacation Bible school. And, and, you know, they learned, but here are some of the things that I learned being with them. I learned that kids are easily distracted. Can I get an amen? Uh, They are easily distracted. They, you know, sometimes you have to say funny things just to make sure they're paying attention. And sometimes you say these things and it totally throws them off and they're like completely off course. They have to touch something. They need to climb over something. They have to be talking to someone, telling someone something. Uh, And that's part of who kids are. They can't sit still if their lives depend on it. Like literally, like if somebody were to say, you move. And I tried this. I literally tried this a few times. I'd say, okay, guys, listen to me. If you move from this chair, you will not be a part of the games that we're going to after this. And everyone would jump out of their chairs. Like they just refused to sit down. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I learned the power of unity in saying that, that when kids don't want to do something and they rally other kids to do this, they don't, you lose, you lose big time. And I learned that a lot of them are a lot smarter than you think they are, that they'll ask you these questions and you will not have the time, you will not have the energy or whatever to respond to some of the questions. Like uh, there'd be one kid, maybe a kid would say something about heaven and then another kid would be like, not everyone's going to heaven. Do you know that? Like you have to be a Christian or else you're going to burn forever and ever. And I'm like, oh man, like I should probably say something about that. I don't have time. <laughs> it's like, okay. But, you know, it, it's funny because in the midst of all these crazy lessons that I learned from them, above all else, this is what I learned, that they long to be included. Everyone has to have a turn. And if you do not include them, you lose them. If one person gets to be line leader. Every kid needs to be line leader. And even the way that the kids long to be included and long to be recognized both individually and corporately, they want to have a chance to showcase who they are in front of everybody. And that's why they can't sit still because if they know the answer, if they know how to do something, they cannot sit still until they've had a chance to display that in front of the world. And I just look at these kids and I was reminded of being that age in feeling the same way. Do you guys remember what it's like to be six or seven and to be in the seat and to wonder if your teacher's ever going to call on you because you know the answer. You did your homework for once in your life. Like, you know the answer and it kills you and you long to be identified and recognized and they don't call on you and you shatter and it breaks your heart and that is part of being a kid. And, and I just, and I don't know, I just think, I just remember I heard the voice of God very clearly say, remember the height at which you have fallen. You see, because there is a certain point, or I guess there comes a time in aging where you learn to sit still. They learn to teach you to sit down and to sit out, and that certain people have certain gifts, and that that isn't your gift, so you shouldn't even try. And maybe you do have that gift, but you're not as good as everybody else, so you sit out, and you sit down, and you just sit back. And there comes a point where we stop trying, right? We stop trying to show the world who we are, and we stop studying for tests, because what does it really matter anyway? They're not going to call 
call on me for anything. So I don't really need to be here. And we just stop trying altogether. Sunrise, remember the height at which you have fallen. And, and I just feel like we treat uh, mission kind of the same way. Jesus' mission, the same way. It, we say, you know, it is for those. It is for them who are on the stage. It is for the polished, perfect people who are amazing and whatever. They smell good and they look great and they're super cool and they have these magnetic, charismatic personalities. And that's not me, so I don't need to partake in God's mission. I'll just sort of sit and relax and be elsewhere. And we have this weird sort of thing where we have this clergy lady divide where it's only for the clergy who does God's mission. But remember being six or seven and longing to show who you are to the world and what you have and the gifts that you have. God is on a mission. He is about laying claim to what is and redeeming what is not and transforming both for his glory. You have been given the keys to the kingdom, every single one of you. Who in your schools can you invite into said kingdom? Who in our jobs can we invite into said kingdom? Who in our families can we invite into this kingdom? And into our book clubs and our knitting circles and and the random things that we go to, our baseball and softball teams, who can we invite into the kingdom? You know, and we have this weird thing in the Western church where we have this divide between the sacred and the secular and think that, man, there are certain things that God cares about, right? Like if he... He might have something to say about like my relationship with him, but he has nothing to say about my job, or he has nothing to say about uh, those things, unless I am a pastor or a minister or whatever. And that's not true. That is not true. Jesus is on a mission, and he's calling the church to be a part of the permanent revolution that sets the captives free. This morning, the application is really very simple. If you have never wrestled with the question of who Jesus is, do not delay any longer. He is asking you right now who you say he is, and a good moral teacher is not the answer. And maybe you've answered that, but you've never truly felt loved by God. God is some sort of taskmaster who who waits for you to fall and to mess up, and you don't hear the name that he calls you. I challenge you this week, this morning, to listen to the voice of God. Listen to your Father in heaven, and hear what he has to say about you. And maybe you know these things. Maybe you're like, all right, tell me. You're telling me nothing new. And that's cool. Great. I'm glad you know this. Uh, But maybe you just feel purposeless. Or you feel like, God, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. I have this passion for music. I have this passion for sports. I have this passion for kids. Or I have this passion for knitting. Or I have a passion for magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, and Dungeons and Dragons. And God is calling you to do something with that. Ask him this morning how he is calling you to be a part of this permanent revolution. And to paraphrase Jonathan Saffron Foer, the author of Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, do not listen to your bones crack underneath the weight of all the lives that you are not living. God has called you to do something. You just need to ask how he's calling you to join this permanent revolution and create something eternal. Let me pray for us as we get ready to go to, to worship. Jesus, we just thank you so much for calling the unlikely. Jesus, that you pick the weak and you pick the the shameful things and the spy things and the low things and you use that to nullify the things that are. 
God, that the kingdom is not about being polished or perfect or pretty or whatever, but that, God, it is about being a broken, jacked-up disciple with absolutely nothing to offer. And yet all we know is that God loves us. Jesus, this morning, I pray that you speak to this community of people. Jesus, that if they don't know who they are in you, Jesus, will you speak and pour out your love, your unfathomable love on this group of people? And Jesus, if they don't know who you are, God, if they are still wondering, Jesus, we just invite space for you to reveal your honor and your power and your glory, and will you humble us before your throne? And Jesus, we are like children in the ways that we yearn and long to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. Will you remind us of that passion? And Jesus, will you ignite it in us? And God, will you create it so that we will not sit still until we have done something? God, I just thank you so much for this opportunity. Will you bless this community of people? Will you continue to bless their ministry? Will you continue to bless the people in this congregation? Will you grow them as a community? Will you grow them as disciples and as a church? We thank you so much, Jesus, for the opportunity to know you, that you have revealed yourself from heaven. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.